Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we believe there's no such thing as secular, here or in the Upside Down. I'm Josh Larson, your host and editor over at thinkchristian.net. One of the many things we do at Think Christian is produce ebooks from time to time. We've done them on Taylor Swift, Star Wars, The Office, a couple more, and you can still find all of those for free at thinkchristian.net slash ebooks. With the long-awaited return of the Netflix series Stranger Things, season four is finally here on May 27. We thought, what better time to put together an ebook exploring the first three seasons? So we're calling it Grace in the Upside Down. And part of it includes essays by Claude Acho, Jill Moran, Stephen Woodworth. I wrote something up for the introduction as well. And sometimes my favorite part of doing these ebooks are the original illustrations that we commission. We got some really great ones this time from Aaron McKenna Nowak. So it's worth it just to check those illustrations out. If you want to get your hands on Grace in the Upside Down for free, you can go to thinkchristian.net slash stranger things ebook. That's thinkchristian.net slash stranger things ebook. To celebrate this, we thought it would be fun to do something of a recap episode here for the podcast. Catch up on Stranger Things, talk about some of our favorite moments and characters thus far, and of course, dig into the theological elements of which there are many. Coming on to help me with that will be Sarah Welch Larson and Joe George. Before that, a quick plug for the YouTube version of the TC podcast. Some of you might be watching that right now. If so, please go ahead and subscribe so you can keep up with all the things we are doing on YouTube. If you haven't given it a look, maybe check us out. We had a great response to our recent episode on 10 Films for Holy Week, on YouTube in particular, so we want to keep building on that momentum. Just search for Think Christian on YouTube and our smiling faces will pop up. Okay, with that, let's head to Hawkins, Indiana and talk Stranger Things. Sarah Welch Larson and Joe George are here to talk Stranger Things with me, and this has been a long time coming, you two. Not our conversation necessarily, but the return of the Netflix series. Uh, After three seasons, a longer-than-planned break um, came upon us due, like so many things, to COVID-19 pandemic. But finally, we're here. Season four is right around the corner. And maybe to get us back into the Stranger Things mindset, to remind folks who it's been a while, forget some of this stuff, or maybe those people who are thinking about jumping on board for the first time, I did ask each of you to give us a one-sentence description of the show. So for those newcomers, for those who need reminders, how would you sell Stranger Things? Let's let's start with you, Sarah. What's your pitch? Uh, Small-town teens fend off the apocalypse in an 80s pop culture mashup, which, I don't know, that description would have sold me if I hadn't seen this show before. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that yeah. works. Absolutely. What do you got, Joe? Yeah, gateway to a hellish other world is unopened in Midwestern 1980s. Or 1980s okay. Midwest. Yeah, that 80s, you know, you both emphasize that, and it's such a crucial part of the show, which some people have written off as nostalgia. Of course, I'm going to be more susceptible to that, having grown up in the 80s and have experienced firsthand a lot of the touchstones that this movie is riffing on and referencing. So I see that as a feature, not a bug of of the series, uh, but definitely it's one of its most um, high-profile elements. 
season three left us with a lot of potential directions where a fourth season could go. And probably I should say right here, we're going to spoiler warnings for all the previous three seasons. We're going to dive into a lot of that. Um, No restrictions there. But at the end of season three, Eleven is moving along with the Byers family away from Hawkins. That means that she and Will Byers have had to say goodbye to friends Dustin, Luke, Mike, and Max, and that Will's older brother, Jonathan, has had to say goodbye to Nancy. Will's mother, Joyce, meanwhile, she's had to say a permanent goodbye to Hawkins, Sheriff, Jim Hopper, having watched him die at the end of season three, although or did there he? <laughs> was a tease, of course, in the final episode that he may actually be imprisoned in Russia, which is... Uh, Unfortunately, a little more timely now, I think, uh, that (laughs) storyline. So given all that, you two, uh, what plot line, what character maybe are you most intrigued to pick up with as season four begins? As I said, this could go a number of different directions. Um, Is there one person, maybe one sort of story that you each hope gets a certain amount of time in this next season? Joe, maybe we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, it's the Hopper plot. I mean, rewatching okay. this to get ready for this is David Harbour is just the breakout, and he is mm. so delightful in every scene. So, as much as I like the kids and uh, find the rest interesting, there's no way they're going to get rid of him. I'm glad to see him pop up in the trailers for the fourth season, and I'm excited to see how he comes back. So, yeah, I want more David Harbour. Fair enough. All right. How about you, Sarah? I'm interested in seeing where the show takes Max, who was introduced in season two as opposed to the rest of the kids in season one. She kind of was a one-note character, especially in like those first few episodes in season two, just kind of the tomboy girl as opposed to the 11-girl character. But I feel like she got some additional depth, especially in season three. And again, based on the trailer for season four, it looks like she might get a little bit of additional depth because she's in mourning. Like her older brother, Billy, died at the end of season three, and he's been a villain for the entire show. But I, I think that's also something that's that's worth grappling with. Um, so I'm curious to see where they're going to take that particular storyline with her. Yeah, Billy's something of a fan favorite, anti-hero favorite, I think, during his run, played by DeCray Montgomery, and Max, Sadie Sink, played Max. And then, of course, we've mentioned Eleven a couple of times, Millie Bobby Brown, who is, I don't know, there isn't really a main character, but kind of has arisen as a lot of the story circles around Eleven, I guess we could say. So I lean a little bit towards her, maybe, and where she's going to find a place in what is kind of her third family in her life, you get a sense now that she's with the buyers. Um, there's the season where Hopper kind of took care of her in hiding. And of course, her experience in the government lab where she was really abused. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how things play out for me with Eleven in particular. So this has been a pretty dark show, but the subtitle of our ebook, the reason we're doing this episode is Grace in the Upside Down. And We like to look for glimmers of grace in pop culture here at Think Christian. It's sort of what we do, even though if you look at something like Stranger Things, it might seem to be a little more difficult, right? Um, Claude Acho's essay in the ebook centers on the powers and principalities. So definitely darkness here. Definitely there are some theological resonance to that. But I'm curious if either of you have seen here and there maybe glimmers of that grace in Stranger Things, or so far has it been a pretty bleak experience on that front? I haven't found it very bleak overall at all. I think it, you know, every season ends, well, the third one less so, but, you know, with an upbeat 
upbeat note. Um, but for me, you know, rewatching, I only had time to watch like half of the first season again and then the third season. And watching them that close, the one that jumps out to me is the whole Steve storyline, the way that mm. he starts out as just kind of typical jerk, popular guy, and becomes a really interesting and very nerdy character at the end. It strikes me then not only the way that we as the audience are asked to forgive him from, you know, pretty dastardly stuff that he does in the first couple of seasons. I mean, not quite unforgivable, perhaps, but not the type of guy that you would if you watch those first couple episodes, you wouldn't think that you'd be pulling for him even by the end of that season, let alone by the time we get to the later seasons. So there's that. But even more so, it's it strikes me about the way that. What Grace ultimately allows us to do is to become ourselves. You know, he mm-hmm. was at the first season living up to this sort of masculinity standard or, you know, this 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 idea of what he had to be to be the cool guy. Yeah. And by the third season, you see him and Dustin acting like utter dorks. And that's wonderful. The scene, their, uh-huh. <laughs> their reuniting scene is just great. And so he's been extended grace to not be that guy anymore. And he gets to be the guy that he wants to be, which is what grace does for all of us. Hi. Hi. I'm Dustin. I'm Robin. Pleasure to meet you. Uh, Is is he here? Is who here? Henderson. (laughs) Henderson. He's back. He's back. I'm back. You got the job. You got the job. (laughs) Oh. How many children are you friends with? Yeah, Joe Keery uh, in in that part, and he is fantastic. He's another great character. I think for me, most of the grace that I've been finding in this show, and I, I do think that there is quite a lot of it, has been in the restoration of relationships within and among all of these different characters. So with Steve... I mean, his whole arc kind of fits that bill a little bit. He starts a little bit as a bully towards Will and towards some of the younger kids and then starts a relationship with Nancy that isn't necessarily like the most healthy of all of them and then slowly works his way towards being a better person then and also being a better friend to all of these characters too. Steve and Dustin especially have just a great relationship. But I think the most of the show kind of follows that same pattern too. Like this this trend from brokenness to further brokenness towards being restored in relationship. Like Will is taken from his family and sort of disappears into the into the upside down. And then at the end of season one, he's returned. And then there's still like levels of brokenness that he's still healing from from that. It's not like everything is fixed overnight. But the rest of the show kind of follows that same pattern of broken relationships and then people working to mend those. And that's kind of where I see most of the grace in this show, too. So we've been talking about characters and storylines and themes. This is such a rich series aesthetically, just the visuals. And so I thought it'd be fun to spend a little bit of time on that. Uh, One of the the things that's been fascinating to me aesthetically is the way it depicts these portals that are between our world and the Upside Down. I'm working on a book right now in horror films, Christian Appreciation of Horror. And and one of the things I'm exploring is the way the genre, and I think this is particular to religious horror actually, reveals another reality beyond our physical materialist one. And often that's a dark reality as we see in Stranger Things. But even in those cases, it works as this testimony of transcendent experience, right? That there is another realm beyond this one that we can touch and, and see. 
And I do think that's baked into the very structure, the very look of Stranger Things with this notion of the upside down seeping into the world we know. One of the more visually intriguing examples for me of this comes in the first two episodes, actually, of season one, where we're at that backyard pool at the high school party. Poor Barb meets her end. <laughs> and uh, we see two worlds at once there, right? The the placid surface of the pool we get in one shot. And then we see Barb struggling to crawl out of the same pool, but now it's empty and it has these creepy tendrils on the sides, um, which of course is representing the upside down. So I'm curious to hear from the two of you, what images along those lines kind of stuck with you uh, even a year or more after you've watched the show? If you have a favorite visual example of of this merging of the show's two worlds, any anything, Joe, that comes to mind when I'm talking about this that jumps out? Yeah, I don't know if this 100% counts, but it's the one that is, to me, the most striking visual of the entire show. The Christmas light uh, yeah. alphabet from the first season, you know? Mm. I have to admit that when I first watched the show, I was one of the detractors who was like, well, this is just, you know, this is just my nostalgia all over again. But that is, not only is that a a new sort of image that we have there, that's kind of become iconic in its own right. Not just for how visually striking it is, but also how narratively it works. That's where you get Winona Ryder's character and, and Charlie Heaton's character, like, throwing themselves at that wall to try to communicate with Will in the other end there. It's really striking and it's kind of hopeful in that sense that you're talking about that, that there is that other world. And even in the darker elements, we are still connected to one another. There's that um, can't quite be separated that we're getting with mm. that image. That's the one that jumps out to me, definitely. Yeah. And it's the one on the wall, the colored lights. But also for me, I think of right away to when she is holding a bunch of lights, of Christmas lights, and they suddenly you know illuminate yeah. right in front of her face. And it's this moment of revelation, you know, that mm-hmm. that she has there pierced through towards Will in the Upside Down in some way. Or the, or he's piercing out into the real world and they're connecting in that way. So, yeah, that's one that pops to mind for me. How about you, Sarah? It's kind of fitting that those uh, Christmas lights also represent hope, kind of, in a way. Yeah. And then also it feels like they're sort of superimposing those two worlds on top of each other. So you have, like, the physical world and then the Upside Down Quite often when the show transfers over to the upside down, the camera will actually flip over very slowly. And then you understand like we're in a we're in a space where physics doesn't really apply and like the world is not necessarily as it should be. But I think the yeah. image that really works for me is after Will's returned from the upside down, beginning of season two, he's in the arcade with his friends. And then there's just these flashes of the upside down just sort of superimposed over the world where he is, where he feels very disoriented and he's kind of stuck back in that place where he had been had been trapped. And just understanding that even though he's out of that situation now, it still exists and it's out there and maybe they need to figure out a way to defeat it again. So it's it's an image that stuck with me too. Yeah, it's another piercing, you know, another puncturing of mm-hmm. of that membrane or whatever you want to call it, um, where they're get, it's getting ever closer together in a very, in those instances, most of them a very threatening way. Mm-hmm. So do we have hope for this series in terms of season four? Do, do we feel like, is this the sort of show that should have wrapped up already? What's kind of your your temperature on what you expect from another season in terms of anticipation and excitement? I mean... I was really positive on the first season, and then I think my enthusiasm for it has waned a little bit with each following season. So 
I was also, I was not alive at all in the 80s, so I feel no nostalgia for it at all. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's true. I mean, you didn't have to bring that up, Sarah. Yeah, but it's funny when I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I appreciate the aesthetics of the show. I kind of wish that they would shift a little bit away from teens fending off the apocalypse from kind of the same source at the end of every single season. Mm. And I'm a little bit leery about the idea that season four is going to be focused more on like a war, like a metaphysical war. But they're going to California, which would be really neat. And I I am very curious to see how Max's storyline in particular is going to play out. So I'm willing to stick around for at least another ride with these characters. Okay. Yeah, I just, uh, like I said, I just watched the third season. I really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought, a lot more than I did the first time around. So mm. I am kind of jazzed up for it. Mm. I mean, it doesn't hurt that we got Robert Anglin. Freddie is showing up in the in the next season. How about we had that? a Nancy walking around. Now Freddie's <laughs> going to visit. That's what I, I love that. It's so, all coming together. It's isn't all it? coming together. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully he'll push through a wall. It'll be great. Um, yeah. No, I... I, I, I'm with Sarah that, yeah, the idea of a war isn't isn't the most exciting thing in the world. I like the idea that they have a clear ending towards this, you know, that they've mm. been building up to something. It's it's worked for me, the kind of the elevation of each of the villains. And especially if this one, which it looks like it is from the trailers, is an actual person as opposed to a CGI thing. That's okay. That I think that's going to help a lot, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that for sure. And, um, yeah, it's so it almost feel I feel like the series has something to prove at this point to to me, at least, is, you know, as much as I've enjoyed each of the seasons that we've gotten, it's time to shake it up in some way that really reinvigorates things. And I think that's possible. I think there's potential there. There's there are rich enough characters, enough subplots, enough relationships, inventiveness, even as it is playing with a lot of familiar elements. I think there's a lot of inventiveness in how. The Duffer brothers are doing this. So we've touched on some of those things. So I'm excited for it as well. Before we go, anything else either of you wanted to touch on or make sure we mentioned? I mean, I just, I kind of hope that they don't split the party for too long because in, in D&D terms, they've split the party. Half of the yeah, characters yeah. are in California <laughs> and the other half are in Hawkins, Indiana. And then there's one way off in the wastes of Russia in, in a gulag, I suppose. Kind of hope that they bring them all together sooner rather than later because I do think that yeah. the show is at its strongest when all of these characters are physically in the same room interacting with each other. So if they can do that or if they can manage to make that reunion like satisfying, then I think I'll be satisfied too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's interesting that the the show has kind of built its own nostalgia now and we want to see our friends together, especially Mm. after this long. So yeah, absolutely. Yep. Makes sense. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Joe. Um, What is something you've each been working on that, that listeners should check out? I know before we started recording here, we were joking a little bit about how the Northman is on all of our minds. I know, Sarah, you and Kevin McLenathan are planning to talk about it on Seeing and Believing. And Joe, you're Think Christian article should be up. It will be up by the time this episode airs at thinkchristian.net. So um, anything else besides Northman talk and writing that you guys wanted to mention? Yeah, over at Seeing and Believing, uh, this, at least as of the week of recording, uh, we'll be doing a bit of a Nicolas Cage fest. So we're going to be reviewing The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent and then also talking about Face Off. That's a that's a fun conversation that um, I definitely enjoyed having with Kevin nice. over there. I have a piece on Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is my favorite movie so far this year um, at Faithfully, so Faithfully Magazine, so go check that out. 
And I wrote on uh, the TV show Severance, which I thought was really great for the progressive. So if you don't mind getting a little political, go check that out. But yeah, <laughs> uh, the Northman is on. I'm going to strip off my shirt and go running around grunting here in a minute. So yeah. as you should. <laughs> I don't know. I think you're a little past that age, Joe. That was that was supposed to be, you know, like a initiation right when you were a kid. But uh, I, I think thought, I could pull it off, Josh. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Are the two of you going to start uh, sword fighting in a volcano by any chance? <laughs> You no just doubt. called us old, Sarah. So yeah, <laughs> yes. we got to do something. My, my back is hurting just thinking about it. All right. Thanks so much, you two. Uh, we'll talk again down the road, okay? All right. Awesome. Poor Diana Ross, so confused by the chemistry of love that she can't resist the charms of an unfaithful lover. Well, at least that's the song Niall Rogers and Bernard Edwards wrote for her to sing anyway. It is irresistible, that's for sure. And in the context of a conversation about the wonderful world of Stranger Things, Upside Down seemed a perfect example. Hello, your Upside Down DJ, John J. Thompson here, and I can't wait for you to dive into the special 40-song Stranger Things playlist I have pulled together for you. It includes pieces of the series' fantastic score by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein, alongside some of the most prominently featured 80 songs in the show, and also some musical Easter eggs, like that Diana Ross song, that fit the theme or plot of the show in one way or another. This mix covers feelings of disorientation, inversion, and the general concept of strangeness, and it's a lot of fun, too. Music is such a critical component of the Stranger Things experience that it seems wrong not to make a soundtrack for this episode and the corresponding ebook. Find the list by searching for the Think Christian profile and following it. You'll see this mix right there on the list of playlists. You can follow the latest episode mix, and it will always update automatically whenever a new show launches. You can also find the massive archive list and over 60 individual mixes I've made for previous episodes. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to put your ear up to the wall and listen for the strangeness coming from the other side. Peace. As we wrap up this episode, I thought I would share a little bit from Jill Moran's essay in our Stranger Things ebook, Grace in the Upside Down. Again, you can get that for free at thinkchristian.net slash Stranger Things ebook. Here's what Jill writes about season two in particular. There is a desire in Stranger Things to be saved somehow by something bigger than ourselves, something otherworldly, as we know the earth is far too full of despair to save itself. Stranger Things can be seen as evidence of our need for God. That need is laced into the fabric of each character as they realize there is no earthly cure, no coping mechanism that heals. Lots of good stuff like that is in our collection, Grace in the Upside Down. Again, get that for free at thinkchristian.net slash Stranger Things ebook. Thanks to Sarah Welch Larson and Joe George for coming on the show to discuss the series. You can keep up with both of them on Twitter. Sarah is at Dodgy Boffin and Joe is at J.A. George I.I. We're on Twitter, too, as well as Facebook as at Think Christian. And over on YouTube, you can find video versions of the show as well as some other video content. Look for the Think Christian YouTube channel. If you are watching us there right now, you missed out on hearing Diana Ross's Upside Down, 
one of the tracks that John J. Thompson selected for his Spotify playlist to accompany this episode. Some of the songs he picked were directly taken from the Stranger Things soundtrack. Others are more tangentially related to the show. If you want to listen to the whole collection, just search for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more info. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Basler. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to consider how another aspect of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.